0: Whether you are currently experiencing breast implant illness or are considering explant surgery, this podcast is a valuable resource for anyone looking to take control of their health and wellness. So let's dive in. Today we're talking about explant surgery or breast implant removal surgery. So when I discuss this, I try to be very specific about the goals. In my mind, I treat everybody. You know, like they're a cancer patient and there's a specific reason for that. One of my clients had a a lymphoma and she did not have a seroma, which is a fluid collection, neither on CAT scan nor MRI nor ultrasound. But it was very suspicious. It was very contracted, very firm. With the lymphomas, anaplastic large cell lymphoma, in my patient, the B-cell lymphoma, the cancer cells are lining the patient's capsule that's up against the device's surface, the shell. Because the irritation of the shell is what creates the activation of the lymphocytes and then creates the lymphoma. And so I approach this case basically like I approach every case. I'm not going to put anybody in jeopardy, by doing a more aggressive procedure than necessary. I will not compromise the care of a patient because I inadequately excised a capsule. If the capsule, which harbors the lymphoma in this case, which touches the implant, is opened and exposed and spilled and or parts are left behind, as evidenced by my FDA testimony In 2019, where I testified publicly behind a woman who had had retained capsule and had anaplastic large cell lymphoma on her ribs, which is devouring her ribs because it was left there. So, stories like this, experiences with patients like mine, over a decade of cancer care or breast cancer patients, leave me in a unique position. I have a lot of conservatism in me when I approach surgery like I want to do the best operation all the time I never want to be the person who misses a cancer I never want to be a person who exposes someone to more risk so over 5,000 breast procedures well over 500 explants at this point I know those risks I feel very confident I can take these out each and every time, and whether we take it out and say it's a total cap selectomy, a precise total cap selectomy, an in-block cap selectomy, I think the goals are still the same to take everything out as intact and undisturbed as possible for me so that I don't compromise a patient's care. I check the boxes for patients. I don't check the boxes for other doctors or entities or industry. And to me, clarifying their pathology to end of the case requires all that material to the best of my ability be intact. So I remove it all as best of my ability intact all the time to give to the pathologist so they can make a diagnosis. It's pretty important to identify these, especially in my patient who has one of the rarest lymphomas ever found in the world. There's only eight of them when I submitted her case to MD Anderson. And For all intents and purposes, she's cured because of the way the procedure was done. Now, she didn't have anaplastic large cell lymphoma. She had a different lymphoma. She didn't have a seroma. But had I just cracked this open and took it out piecemeal, I would have compromised her care and exposed her to unnecessary risk by doing it that way. So the most common way to approach this is through the, the fold under the breast the primary fold. That's usually where silicone gel devices are placed because you need a wider incision. It's more commonly done that way. And you start by making the incision, removing any old scar tissue, if that needs to be done, especially if it's a widened scar, and then you'll see the subcutaneous fat, which is the layer just below the skin. So that's the fatty layer, which becomes important later when you talk about fat transfers, where you put the fat. So we open the fatty layer, and then you're going to come in contact either with the devices capsule, or muscle typically, if it's behind the muscle. If it's above the muscle, then you're gonna come into contact pretty quickly with the capsule of the device. There's typically not a lot of tissue between the bottom of the breast and the implant capsule, which is your scar tissue around the implant surface. We'll just call the implant surface the shell and your tissue, the capsule. So there are two distinct entities. And so then you can easily start to see, especially if it's slightly thicker, like a tissue paper is too thin, but like a, a piece of paper you would write a letter on. So if it's kind of dense like that and you have some tensile strength to it, you start to gently work around it. And we use cautery. So cautery uses current and that separates tissue. It's not like the old days where we're just cutting with a cold knife, like you would slice through an orange or something. Cottery cautery causes coagulation or stops bleeding at the same time. So if you're using it properly, you're not going to hurt the actual implant capsule. You're not going to expose the implant shell, but you're going to separate tissues and not cause bleeding at the same time. So you can, what we call circumferentially dissect, and you're going over the surfaces. And then really... But it all boils down to where the rubber meets the road is how do you get this implant capsule off the surface of ribs off the muscle think of it like this towards the sternum or breastplate however you want to term that these are areas which repetition matters technique matters using instruments that help you matter so we use something called a freer elevator that gently raises this tissue off of the surface of the cartilage and the ribs so cartilage is what connects the sternum to the rib the rib is actually the bony portion so as you're raising these there's clear planes between the layers and so there's some things to avoid like don't point instruments downward because they'll go towards the ribs you want to stay level or parallel to the rib surfaces. That'll avoid injuring the thorax, which contains the the lung, of course, and a pneumothorax is what's written about a lot and described as a a really bad complication from this. That rarely happens, but actually anything that's happened in surgery over time, if you've trained enough, done enough, you've seen these complications, and you know how to manage them. When getting that tissue off, especially in the lower inner quadrant, so towards the breastplate or the sternum think of the breast as a pie chart and this is the lower inner portion of the pie chart so as you come up those rib spaces you're working your way around to the upper inner and then when you get about halfway we'll call it the border of it in the midline you're going to transition and you're going to see muscle on the chest wall next to the ribs, and this is the pectoralis minor. And once you see that, that landmark, you can choose to keep going, or you can switch and go from the armpit towards the midline. And so why does it matter? So for me, it's a level of comfort when I see that, I know that I'm on muscle now, there's absolutely pretty straightforward from here, we'll take it off the muscle and be be done. Now, people get stuck at this position a lot. And this is why people don't like doing this because it's adherent to the rib surfaces. And so one way to go about it is start the other direction and come from the armpit where there's always muscle and just roll it from, we call it lateral to medial, but from the armpit towards the sternum, towards the midline. And you're gently dissecting this with your cautery off until you get to the ribs again. And then you start using a freer elevator, which looks to me I always call it like a little butter knife because it's round at the edge and dull and you're just gently nudging it. This is what takes time and patience to do to remove this tissue. So say for instance, like my patient, I described in one of my previous comments, the patient had a cancer found on pathology. Like you don't know who has cancer typically. That's typically a pathologic finding in this case, after the fact. So until the PATH report is back, you never know whether or not your patient safety is compromised or the long-term health could be affected by this procedure. So I'm always trying to get this material off based on those experiences, based on testifying behind somebody who had residual ALCL left on their ribs. So I try not to leave those remnants, I tried to bring closure to these so that everything's done safely and checks all the boxes. So once that material's off, because every rib, every piece of cartilage on the thorax has a surface that can be dissected off of it, you can remove it and it can be done safely. You can control anything that's bleeding, but usually there's, there's really not much normally. Now, you know there's specific nuances and we can talk specifically about them but that's how i try to do a breast implant removal with all the capsular tissue intact without compromising or exposing the shell of the implant are you on a journey to healing and wellness but feeling overwhelmed and unsure of where to turn look no further than dr Rob's solutions at Dr. Rob Solutions, we understand the unique challenges that come with breast implant illness, which is why we offer a wide range of the highest grade supplements, medical-grade skincare, and lab testing, and HARP options to aid in your journey to recovery. Our supplements are specially formulated to support detoxification and aid in the healing process, while our medical-grade skincare products are designed to nourish and protect the skin. We also offer a comprehensive lab testing to help Identify any underlying health issues that may be contributing to your symptoms. And for those who are ready for ex-plant surgery, we offer HARP options as well. Don't let the uncertainty and confusion of breast implant illness hold you back any longer. Trust the experts at Dr. Rob Solutions to provide you with the resources and support you need to take control of your health and wellness. Visit our website today to learn more and to order your products. Take the first step towards healing and wellness with Dr. Rob Solutions at. Dr. dot com. What I just described is how I approach a, a straightforward patient with a history of breast augmentation who thinks they have breast implant illness and because of their symptoms, once they're explant. There are special circumstances. So let's think of a special circumstance. Somebody who has a grade four capture contracture, which is a visible difference, deformity, higher, lower shape change, it's painful. These are typically, in my experience, easier for me to take care of. Because the firmer the shell, the less difficult it is for me to get it mobilized off of the rib cage or other surfaces. Because it's tensile strength, it's strong in that you can separate the layers more easily. Think of a book that's been open, the pages have dried after being wet. They're all stiff, All right? They're not stuck together, they're just, you move them now, you can separate them more easily if you use this instrument and nudge them apart. Versus somebody who's got a capsule contracture that's sort of tense, the capsule's kind of thin. Those are ones that are a little bit more difficult because as you manipulate it, it can break, it can tear, gel can leak out if it's ruptured. So each of them, they bring their own nuances. And clients always ask me like, oh, Dr. Whitfield, do I need to get an MRI to know if it's ruptured? Do I need an ultrasound? Well, I do ultrasounds in my office all the time. I will tell you it's hard to determine a posterior rupture, even on MRI, even a small one, because when you start pushing it around and applying pressure to the device, what happens? It squishes out. But on MRI, you're never, ever going to see this because you're not applying pressure to the device. I mean, it can't squeeze out. If you came with an MRI, I would say that is great. You brought me your MRI. I've read through it. It says you have a rupture or you don't have a rupture. If you don't have a rupture, I don't believe the MRI because I've operated on people with normal MRIs who are ruptured. If it says it has a rupture... For me, the plan is no different. I do the exact same thing because I either think you have a rupture or you could have a cancer. So if you're already prepared for all those situations and you're treating everybody collectively the same way where you're trying to do a safe procedure to maximize their long-term health by removing entire areas safely and effectively, Then on the back end, when you're getting path reports back, I anticipate all mine to be negative, clear margins if there's cancer, just like the patient I mentioned to you that had a a lymphoma. So to date, I've done over 500 of these. I have found two cancers. One was pre-explant, and the patient went on to have mastectomies. And I did the explant with the mastectomy surgeon at the time in the reconstruction when I used to perform reconstructions. And then the second patient who had a breast cancer was this lymphoma that we found, but the margins were completely clear because we did the procedure properly and did not violate the capsule in any way during the procedure. So I felt very good for her after the fact that we're able to complete that effectively and she has no long-term health consequences for that. She doesn't require any further treatments. She's monitored annually and I see her annually as well. There are times when I'm surprised at the level of rupture and extravasation of silicon gel, meaning the gel is leaking outside the patient's native scar tissue capsule because the shell has been compromised. Its native implant shells failed. And if they're old implants from, say, the 80s, there's been such a specific tissue response, it creates a hard shell, like a really hard egg. And then it's fine. All that is blocked and protected. But in these implant shells that then, 90s ish, that deteriorate and the gel's really liquid like, if someone has a thin scar capsule, the patient's scar capsule, that will leak into the tissue like syrup. And that is an incredibly messy thing to deal with. And so we get disappointed when we run into those in the operating room because those are more of a, a challenge. There is kind of a fun way to control the gel. You take the back of a syringe, pull the plunger out, hook it to suction, and then use the open end of the syringe without the plunger to suck the gel out. You can get the gel out more easily versus trying to do it with just a suction tube alone because you have a bigger opening using the back of a large syringe, like a 60cc syringe. So that's a way, use three or four or five of those to get all the gel out, and then you can perform a more controlled capsulectomy without the gel leaking everywhere. Now, after I have this material out, we use a, a solution that changes the pH, and no virus, no bacteria, No fungus, no mycobacterium, no mold can tolerate significant pH change because whether they're unicellular or multicellular organisms, the cell will fail when you lower the pH significantly. That's the whole point. So we do this. Approximately four minutes of acidic solution, rinse it out. If we have ruptured gel, we aggressively clean the gel material out with scrub brushes we do everything at that time to create healing surfaces that are free from active bleeding, but raw so that they'll heal together. And in those instances, there's no retained capsular material. So things will heal down. People ask a lot about, you know, can I get a seroma? Do I need a drain? So all the literature used uh, to describe drainage of say a breast pocket or a tummy tuck initially was felt to be necessary but as we've learned from the drainless tummy tuck we don't need drains now you use suturing techniques to control it so for the breast pocket what do i do special first of all i widely undermine the inframory fold which is the bottom of the breast pocket with or without a lift i will do this because i want the breast fold to rise so in a way we're just disrupting it and in this process it becomes continuous if you want to think of it like that with the abdominal wall tissues so the fluid's going to drain out on the abdominal wall but underneath the skin and the tissues now this is how i do it for fat transfers for explants alone explants with lifts and i don't use drains anymore my hard and fast rule for a drain is a really a difficult to control ruptured silicon gel leak in the pocket because drains don't prevent infections. They don't prevent hematomas. So you'll see more people infect themselves than you prevent infection because we used to drain everybody because we felt it was necessary to help control that fluid accumulation in the pockets. And what we had more of was people infecting themselves by touching their drains but not properly cleansing their hands. So then we started putting little clear dressings over the drains. We started using antibiotic discs around the drains. And finally, I just was like, let's just use literature and say that drains, when left in people, cause more infections than they prevent. So if we technically can avoid the drain, safely undermining the tissues, people will produce fluid three, four, five, six, seven days and it'll be gone. It's a normal process. There's no more infectious agent because the pH of the solution we used caused a terminal or sidal situation in the pocket. How long does this surgery take? If I'm doing an explant alone, no other procedures, I will book the case for approximately two and a half hours. I do perform all these cases under general anesthesia using what's called a laryngeal mask airway. That's an area that sits not down past the vocal cords, but in the back of the throat. So there's less of an instance of sore throat, but you still can have some. One of the big things I try to do is that the completion of that explant and the completion of cleansing the pocket is perform an intercostal nerve block. So I am looking at every rib cartilage, every rib itself I see all the intercostal muscles, which are the muscles that connect the ribs together. So I take Expro, which is a liposomal bupivacaine, and I inject it into the areas where I operated. The point being is to block the nerves that run along the border inferior or lower border of the rib, as well as the muscular surfaces of the pectoralis major, minor, their nerves, and the serratus anterior, and sometimes the top of the rectus abdominis. So if you do that consistently, Mm -hmm. side to side, case after case, you will diminish your patient's need for both narcotic, which is great. Narcotic leads to all sorts of complications that we don't want. But you'll be up doing more. You'll feel better sooner. You won't wake up in pain. My patients don't wake up having significant discomfort because I've done all these steps already in an explant to block what will be interpreted by the patient's brain as pain. And so the next question I always get asked is, what will my breast look like afterwards? On our next episode, we'll talk about how we use fat from other parts of the body to restore the shape and volume of the breast. Please make sure you follow the show and subscribe to our BII email list. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you found the information and stories shared on this podcast helpful and informative. Remember, taking control of your health and wellness is key to recovery from breast and plant illness. If you're looking for additional resources and support, be sure to visit our online store, Dr. Rob's Solutions, at drrobsolutions.myshopify.com. You'll find a wide range of wellness products and supplements to support your journey to recovery. From specially formulated detox supplements to personalized skincare products, we have everything you need to aid your recovery. Visit Dr. Rob's Solutions today at drrobsolutions.myshopify.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another episode soon. Remember, you're not alone in this journey, and together we can overcome breast implant illness. Take care.